This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So I'm so happy to welcome you all here to celebrate Gia Tolentino for her New York Times bestselling, Trick Mirror, Reflection on Self-Delusion. A couple of notes before we start. Um, we have, we're recording tonight, and we ask you to come up to the mics to ask your questions. There's one there and one over there in the corner. Um, and please make your question a question. It's really important. Not a comment, not an anecdote, but just, you know, let's get the conversation started. At the end of the event, if you are lucky enough to be sitting in a chair, if you would fold it up and lean it against one of the bookcases, our booksellers would be very grateful. Um, feel free to be taking pictures, to be Instagramming, um, tag us, uh, we'll get it out there. Um, but please silence your phones, because that's just like not cool if it's going off in the middle of the event. Um, and what else? Our fall is crazy. Um, I, don't, I know we have a lot of new faces. Um, at Politics and Pros, we have events here at our store in Union Market, at our store at The Wharf, um, at Sixth and I, at Lisner, at Lincoln Theater, um, almost every single night of the year. Um, coming up, we have Ta-Nehisi Coates, Jody Cantor and Megan Twohy, Leslie Jameson, Jacqueline Woodson, and like so many others. The very best way to get an early heads up is to become a member. But if you can't spend what you would on one DoorDash delivery to you know, join our membership, $25, you can do that. At least sign up for our weekly newsletter, and then you'll get all the information. Um, so I've been a Gia Tolentino fan for a really long time. But I have to tell you that... Um, I just like had an experience this morning when I was in my 6.30 a.m. bar class. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, the Jonas Brothers, it was like pumping in and it was so loud. But even louder than that was, it was Gia's words that were kind of like penetrating into my reality. Um, let me just read you really quickly. Jessica turned the lights off and chirped that it was time for back dancing, a term that I thought collapsing onto the floor sounded like what people on a parenting message board might use as a euphemism for sex. It was in, in fact pretend fucking. We laid on our backs and thrust our hips into the darkness with a sacrificial devotion that I had not applied to actual sex for years. <laughs> so... I bring that up because I had this like revelation at 6.30 in the morning that I'd done this thing so many times, but with so little attention. Gia's writing gave me deeper entrance into my own experience. To me, what is so extraordinary about her work, you know, in Jezebel, The Hairpin, The New Yorker, and in her new collection, is the generosity of her worldview. She offered a critical analysis of the ridiculous moves that we make in bar and the whole culture around it, but it wasn't judgment. She is anti-anti-pleasure as she asks us together, how can we have nice things without those nice things eating us alive? I'm wary of all the voice of generation stuff, but I know that no one, else, no one else's essays have the brutal momentum of hers, this like gathering ability, even as she tears things apart. Here's this thing. Let's look at it together. Follow the fire of my thoughts, and I won't give you an answer, but I'll happily give you more questions. What this appreciation means for my bar practice, I have no idea. <laughs> but I do know as a reader that I'm, I'm just completely exhilarated by her work. We are absolutely thrilled to have in conversation with Gia Kat Chow. Um, if you don't know, which you should, Kat is a reporter with NPR. Thank you. Thank you. 
She's a reporter with NPR, a founding member of the Code Switch team, but she's currently on sabbatical, working on her own book, forthcoming from Grand Central, that digs deep into questions about grief, race, and identity that her mother's sudden death triggered when she was a young girl. Please help me welcome Kat Chow and Gia Tolentino. This is on. Hey, hey. This is fucking insane. You <laughs> I don't guys, think there's enough people here. You guys, thank you for standing. Holy shit. I'm sorry wow. if anyone got wet on the way here. Like, what the fuck? It felt like the, the world was ending. Yeah. I hope the lights go off, like, honestly. I know. That'd yeah. be so fun. We could just tell ghost stories for, yeah. like, an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so how's it going? Good. Thank you for, like, for real, thank you for doing this. Oh. I am a great admirer of cats. Oh, my pleasure, likewise. Um, so can you bring us back to the moment when you decided to write this book? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably the actual moment where I decided to write the book was, there were two. So I think, like, probably... I would guess all of us. I woke up the morning after the election and I was like, I'm never going to be sure of anything again. And I hope I'm not. Like, I, I was so aware of where my sense of, like, I had felt so sure of this moral narrative about the world and I had thought it was predictive. And I, and I woke up just with this, like, searing nausea of how that doesn't work in our world anymore. You know, the more we can understand something perfectly, we can understand the moral stakes of it, we can... And it doesn't necessarily translate into the things that we had wanted or hoped, right? And it was just, that was all I could think about. And as a writer, you know, that filled, like, if your job yeah. is to understand something and to express it clearly and you no longer are sure what the exact use of that is anymore, that, so that was just this deep feeling of uncertainty. I sat, into, I sat in it for like four months and then I sort of... Then I was like, okay, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be in agony. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be thinking, <laughs> right. you know, you're going to be like this till 2020 at the very late, at the very earliest. And I was like, well, one, one way to turn agony into something that's possibly productive is write a book. And I was, yeah, I think I was just in February of 2017, I started thinking like, is there a kind of clarity about the world that is compatible with this uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can I write a book to see if there is and what it would look like? And so you use the phrase self-delusion. And how did you come up with that as sort of like the thesis for your book? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, I'm extremely good at it. And I... <laughs> Aren't we all there right now? <laughs> yeah. And I actually, you know, I... So the thing is, I think self-delusion is to a large degree... Uh, I mean, not a large degree. To some extent, it is natural and necessary, right? To it's be a survival mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. We have to believe that we're here, you know, that, that what we're doing is worthwhile, even though like a lot of science point to they're not, it's not, you know, <laughs> like we have to believe that it's, that things are to be a writer. You have to believe that what you have to say is like important. And, you know, maybe it's not, I, I think, and self-delusion, like, I think that, you know, there, my, my cheerleading coach in high school used to say, fake it till you feel it. And it's not exactly the attitude I go through life with, but there are certain things like, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to a friend and, you know, I, I say in the book, when, when a friend is going on about something and I'm like, I'm actually so tired. I want to go to sleep. I, I, I'm like, okay, Gia, you're a good friend. Be here, be a good friend. And then in five minutes I am, you know, like yeah. I think self, I think that kind of 
self-delusion is great, but the real, the real answer to this question is it's like, obviously the internet, like, (laughs) um, it's the, the internet is structured around social platforms that put our personal identity at the very center of the universe. Like programmatically, the architecture of the universe is like, I say in the book that it's like, you know, being able, sitting on a vantage point and looking out at the whole world and everything somehow looks like your own reflection. And it seemed to me that, you know, on the internet where selfhood is monetized and remonetized and sold against other selfhood, it's like knowing yourself seems like a mandate and an impossibility simultaneously. Right. And I was interested in, I'm interested in that, like things about our world that are, that are required and impossible, that are like incredibly attractive and incredibly repulsive at the same time. And so something that you said before about like learning to trust yourself, how did you, how did you come to this point where you were like, yes, I'm going to write this book and put myself out there? Like, where did this trust come from in this moment? I actually think that writing the book was like part of why I wanted to do it was to put myself out there less for a while. Like I didn't think about this part. (laughs) I didn't, I also didn't anticipate that anyone would read it. Like all I, I, so I, I started blogging. I mean, as I say in the book, I started fucking blogging when I was like 10 years old and set up an angel fire website. And I, you know, like I, I have taken really naturally to these mechanisms of self broadcasting all my life. Like I ended up on a reality TV show when I was 16. Like I, did all this stuff. I had been writing in public, basically I'd been blogging since I started writing like, you know, as a career. I don't know why I'm putting that in quotes. Uh, (laughs) um, And I had had, and I was kind of, I think it was sort of the same thing when you're on the internet and it's just the world is sort of pinging against your brain all the time, you know, you, you feel like you can't quite think straight. And I was worrying that my writing was getting to be like that too. Like I wanted to, I wanted to work in private. I actually didn't even, I, I, my, one of my, I would say maybe the central motivation for writing this book is wanting to work, to have a little secret for a year and a half. And Mm. I like how you put that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, aren't you finding it fun on leave? Like Um, writing your book now? I feel like writing (laughs) a book is not, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm on the spot. (laughs) You're like, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do have a lot of time to kind of retreat into yourself. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, there's something, I mean, the book is eventually a part of this too, but there's something about, I, um, I, I went to a a fiction MFA program and I wrote a novel and I worked on it for four years and I shelved it. And that experience was one of the most rewarding writing experiences of my life, working on something. And I think that we live in a time where we are sort of incentivized slash required to monetize every last bit of labor and effort and pleasure and play and our relationships and our free time and our spare bedrooms and all that stuff. And there's something about, (laughs) there's something about, there was something about just taking myself off of that wheel of constant production. But then of course I just put myself back on it harder than I ever had with this book. (laughs) Didn't really think this through. (laughs) So what was your process like though? I mean, how did you come up with all of these ideas and when you, you know, were working on this? I think, so, you know, there are those things that, you know, when a friend brings them, them up at like a bar or something, you just talk too much, you know, you <laughs> like, like there were these things that I would find myself just talking about, like, like they were the, I mean, that's kind of, um, I feel like I operate on a calculus of chemistry with everything that I write about. It's like, I, you have different chemistry with different people 
Um, some people you could ride that out for a really long time or forever. Right. And I think that it's like that with certain subjects for me, like I know that there's some sort of friction, some sort of productive friction and some sort of ease there. And these subjects were all in that line, but they were basically like, I feel like I've compared it to like, like nine, like a bunch of sheets of like flypaper on the wall of my brain and stuff would just start sticking to them like that. Um, that, optimization essay, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to expose how lazy I am in bed for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it was like, I would, it was just these things. Like I worked, I worked, uh, the Jezebel office was directly upstairs from the Lululemon flagship store in, in Union Square. And you know, that mixed up files of Miss Basilie Frankweiler mm-hmm. book, yeah, yeah. right? Where they like hide in the Met for a week. I was like, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to hide in Lululemon, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm just going to see how long I can stay in there. And there were... And I would just walk by it. I would walk, I would walk by it. And I just like, I would just have like a mini stroke, you know, like I would, I would just be like, this is late capitalist fetish wear. And, and I, and I didn't know why I thought that. And then, you know, I, I would like, I would also like leave for lunch and I'd be like on Slack, like, you know, past Lulem and then like I'd stroke out and be like, uh, and then, and then I would go to sweet green and like, you know, send more emails while I was getting my salad. And then I'd eat more salad while I was, you know, send more emails. I was eating my salad. And I was just like, what this, this sense of relentless acceleration Mm -hmm. and how it applies to the body and how it applies to aspiration and how it applies to women's bodies specifically, like the way that the, that the female body is turned very explicitly into a market asset by Instagram and basically everything. Um, it was just like these things kept accumulating until that February. I was like, okay, I could write 10,000 words on each of these things. So maybe I should, because the New Yorker's not going to let me write 10,000 words on my like, <laughs> you know, like athleisure as capitalist fetish wear theory, or they might've, but like it wouldn't have been would, yeah. as vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, so I feel like one thing that your essays do so well is that um, it opens up a door basically to XYZ topic. And then it, you walk into another one and it's just like, you're full of, you're going through this house where there's just so many different rooms. And it's like at the end, you know, you've just opened the reader up to so many different ideas. How do you build upon these ideas in your writing? How do I? So I think, I think when I think like I, I tried to explain this the other day and my boyfriend was like, this makes no sense to me. But so (laughs) I think of, I think I was thinking of all of these essays is each one was about a question yeah, and each question would lead me to a subject and it would look like, I picture it as kind of an irregularly shaped gemstone and you just have to rotate it under the light like 10 times and you and finally you'll be able to see what the sides are. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like a gemstone. Like, you know, like, come on dog. Like it's a fucking gemstone. Yeah. I, um, I think that, I think that one of the so one of the reasons I picked these things were they were things that I felt like I needed to look at in all the, all of those different ways mm-hmm. in order to see them clearly, to see the contours of what I was even looking at. And I think when I, when I get a subject, it's like, actually, I mean, the research for me is the most fun part. It's like, I'm going to read everything that's ever been written or, you know, obviously not everything, but I'm going to read as much as I can about this, um, as widely as I can, because one of the, one of the things that the internet and I think writing on the internet does, the internet kind of, it has this feeling of kind of perpetual present, you know, like it's, it's sort of, we're all arriving at conclusions that people arrived at in the labor movement in like 18, you know, like 1899. Like it's like, um, and one of the things that I wanted to do was to, was to 
just really, really get more dimensions and more depth into a subject. Like I think to learn more about it than I like a way that I could only do if I was like, I'm spending, I'm spending a year and a half on this, you <laughs> spending, know, yeah, 10, like not words. like, not like for, you know, a blog post, it's, you know, it's a thousand words, which is fine. But there were, I wanted to, I feel like the book was a premise for me to learn about these things for yeah. as long as I could, which I should have taken longer, but But also, fine. I mean, you were saying that you started each one with a question. So how did you know that you were done answering it? I think so in general in writing and kind of it's, it's like my, I've lowered my expectations for life, like to like literally just <laughs> almost nothing. <laughs> but I think, I mean, all that I'm looking for. So in writing the idea that we're, I have never, basically all I hope for my own writing just at work in general is that I can shift my own thinking a little bit, that I'll get somewhere new at all. Yeah. You know, I, um, I've stopped thinking that I'll find the answer to anything ever. And I, um, certainly not thinking about, you know, convincing anyone of anything or, you know, even like I question the tangible use of understanding things all the time, even, but what I, <laughs> but what I do want and what I do think is accessible for all of us is like, we can keep, what I don't want is for my brain to lock down on what I already think, you know? And so I, in general, with any piece I write, I feel like I'm done when like I always talk about this, Deborah Eisenberg in some art of fiction interview at Paris Review, she talks about writing as making a set of givens yield. Yeah. And I think about yeah. that. That's like all I'm trying to do in life, right? It's like all I want is for this set of givens to yield a little bit, for there to be something, there to be some more room. And I think that that feeling that something has shifted is mostly what I was after. I don't think there's even like a definitive, like there's, I when I was, um, I've been thinking about this for like two months, like ever, ever since I went to like my first marketing meeting for this book, they were like, so what is the one takeaway, you know, for, for writers? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, like there's no, there's no, there, there are, there's almost none, almost none of these, almost none of these essays have a takeaway. And I was like, I've right. made a huge mistake, you know, <laughs> like, but I also, um, yeah. So there, there was never an answer. I don't think I successfully answered any of these questions, but I think I got somewhere new enough that, I don't know, we could all find our own version of it. I also like, yeah. yeah. But like, how do you know when you're satisfied personally? You know, I mean, yeah. and I think that, you know. How do you know? I don't know. I mean, I think when I feel like what you were saying, when yeah, you've kind you of feel just like something. moved to the needle. Yeah. Um, I think you just know, right? And I think that that to me is one of the most satisfying things about realizing that all of the hours I spent blogging about stupid shit have finally added up to is coalesced into something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, and I think I know, I think I know, like when I start a piece, I know how much trouble it's going to be, which is like the, the greatest gift in the world. And I also, you just know, you know, when mm -hmm. it's done, you know, when like a conversation's done, you know, when, you know, it's time to leave dinner, it's time to leave the bar. Like you just, you just know. I think. And so is there a piece in recent years that you've worked on where you've read it again and been like, whoa, I totally would have, you know, moved into a different direction and you've wanted to return to it and write something about it again? That's a great question. I, I do not read things after I've done with them <laughs> because I, but there is, so in like 2015 or something, I wrote a piece about Cracker Barrel for the New York Times Magazine. <laughs> I love Cracker Barrel. Like, y'all know what I mean? Like the country store. So like good. we all, so we good. all, we all love 
love that Cracker Barrel country store. Like the wall of candles, you know, <laughs> like it's so good. And the free biscuits and whatever. So I like, so, and also Cracker Barrel is like, uh, you know, it's like pretty sus. Like it's like, like very, you know, like it's like very obviously this sort of, you know, wouldn't it be fun if this was the antebellum South or whatever? Like it's not, you know, but yet I love it. And I, and I wrote this like, Obama era piece, you know, where I was like, mm, like history is redeemable, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was like, it was a very like, um, you know, maybe we can rewrite the ills of history with our enthusiasm for Cracker Barrel, like whatever. And it's like, I was so wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> even though Cracker Barrel recently, like there was that news story, they like recently kicked out some racist person for something like, mm -hmm. like Cracker Barrel, like they also had this discrimination suit against LGBTQ workers. Like it's, it's a complicated thing. I was too optimistic about Cracker Barrel and I, yeah. I, I live with this guilt every day. <laughs> that is a lot of optimism for it. I love Cracker Barrel though. My family, my family once spent an entire road trip. So I grew up in Houston mm -hmm. and my parents are Filipino immigrants from Canada. And we once drove back to Toronto and stopped at Cracker Barrel for every meal, like as a bit. And um, what, what did you order? What was your thing? I always got breakfast, which is so gross. Like, you know, like it's, it's really disgusting, but I, um, you know, playing the little game, like it's, yeah, yeah, we love that game <laughs> but yeah <laughs> wow okay so how <laughs> um basically you know your books hit so much on how everything is monetized yeah. and it really kind of like messed with me when I read it for the first time and I was like how how do I even function as a human in the world and I was wondering I'm sorry. <laughs> like how 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 do you even participate in this society without really like falling trapped to your body being commodified your writing being commodified yeah. and I guess how do you navigate that um, especially in a writing sense like yeah. the act of writing in a way feels like you're participating in this system too yeah, I was recently, so I've been ta literally talking about this at every bookstop, but if y'all, like, I strongly recommend Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. It, like, really, really fucked me up. Partly because I was like, oh, I've oriented, I was like, capitalism has warped me at the level of desire, you know? And, um, and I have a hard time, it's like, I... I have produced at such a rate, like, such a, a near... I mean, I am a compulsive writer, and I always have been, but I have... As with everything, I mean, the, the book is basically about how I have adjusted to and taken pleasure in and bent my selfhood around systems that are corrosive to it. And I think that uh, the condition of being alive right now is often that of knowing you're benefiting from systems that are, if you're lucky, benefiting from systems that are crushing other people, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, on the one hand, I want to stop orienting my life around production, around monetizable production. On the other, writing is the thing that I love to do most in the world. And I, and I think they'll never be squaring that. And Jenny talks like capitalism has a way of it can, it can appropriate resistance to it within, you know, five seconds of you uttering that resistance. Yeah, you know, you yeah. can, in writing a book that's about capitalism, I, I have tried, to, you know, I'm trying to use it to solidify my market position. There's nothing, you know, like there's no way around that. There's no way around, there's no way around that. And I think, I think that how I, the way that I 
cope with it was like partly just writing this book to see, can I have these two ideas in my head at once that, that the systems that I take pleasure in are also the systems that are ruining me, you know? And, and like, what's the way, like the only way forward is just dead, like just dead straight into that, into that contradiction. And I do think that, um, one of the, one of the kind of most beautiful and strange things also about being alive right now is that we're all engaged in this collective project of trying to be more human in the context of systems that de-incentivize humanness. And, and it's like all of our way forward is completely individual and it's going to be however we do it. Um, which is part of the reason I don't really write about, um, like there have been, I've, I've been saying like one thing that's been interesting about this book and the sort of capitalist, you know, realism slash fatalism that it has in it, um, is that like boomers are reviewing the book and being like, you know, Tolentino's cynicism, you know, like <laughs> borders on the deeply fatalistic, you know, and then like, and then, Je- and then like Gen Z kids are reviewing it for their college papers. And they're like, this book filled me with hope, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I think, I think our sense of how intractable, yeah. like the, the sense of like how fucked we are is so generational, I feel. And, um, and I think, and I, and I feel myself on the end of it that is a, like a little bit younger. That's like to even articulate, to even be able to admit and live with this problem is, is like the necessary first step and p- possibly all I'm capable of doing right now. Um, I'm certainly not capable of telling other people how they should live with these contradictions, but I think I wanted to use the book as like, you know, here is like maybe a really dizzying house and you'll step out and like have a little bit clearer of a sense of how you want to start walking, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. How does it feel though to, you know, have people look to you as though you've written this guide, you know? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what does that do to you? It's, it's been strange mostly because that was the actual thing I was wanting not to do. Right. I was like, can I, can this book be useful if it is not providing that, like one of the things that's driven me nuts in writing for so long, um, you know, is when a piece, like it's a, when a piece starts and ends on the same thought, um, it's like the whole point is to change it to like open something else. And also when there's this rhythm at the end of essays and op-ed pieces, that's sort of like, and that's why it's all going to be okay. Right. You know, it's like, and that's why we should all like, you know, and, and here's hoping we'll do the right thing. Right. Like it's like, it's this movement that's this like sort of certainty and prescription. And like one of the only things I was trying to do in the book was avoid it. And I think there's also how I've been reacting to it is like, sometimes I will leave the most important thing out of out of whatever I'm writing mm-hmm. because I don't, or the most obvious point, like I, like your I, large adult son. Yeah. yeah, yeah I've talked yeah. about this. Like I, like I wrote this piece about that large adult son's meme and it's like, that was a piece about race. Like it was, it was a piece about how like white men get to be called boys till they're Donald Trump jr. And you know, black boys, you know, at Trayvon Martin's age are considered full grown adults. And I didn't put that in the piece because it's so obvious, you know, and I didn't want to be like, and this meme explains the Trump president, you know, like it's, it's, it's just, it's so obvious. And I think one thing about this book is like that I haven't known how to talk about because I'm not sure if it's too obvious or is that one thing that the book did teach me was that I worry so much about my own self and my own morality. And the real thing that the book taught me was that 
like none of like individual action. Like we know it with like climate change, it just individual action. It's, it's, it's easy for us to think about because we all think about ourselves all the time, but it doesn't matter. Like the solutions are all policy level. They're all systemic. And I think what those solutions are, are really obvious. Yeah. And, but I haven't known how to talk about that. Cause I don't know. Yeah. It's strange. I'm like, I don't, I don't fucking like, <laughs> tell you. <laughs> Do you find, or I mean, I guess what was the hardest thing in the actual writing process? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, was it the ideas? Was it the act of writing itself or was it balancing your job too? Cause you were writing full time for the New Yorker, but yeah, I think, I think it was, I think it was really that sense that like, I don't know, this is a bad sales pitch for the book, but, um, (laughs) I think it was that overarching sense of like, it's hard to, it was hard to write. It was hardest to write about that sense I had that understanding a situation might mean nothing. Um, and it was hard to write about that in a way that wouldn't paralyze the writing, yeah, you know, or just be like such a bummer. I think it was the hardest thing maybe was writing about, because the book, this is why I'm so surprised. Like, I'm so grateful that people are fucking reading it is that it's like, it's a dense book. It's a dense book and it's, and it's, and it's about like, it's about the world being a nightmare and that's not like a great sell, you know? And I think the hardest thing was figuring out how to present that in a way that there was some air, there was some air in in the book at all, yeah. you know? And I mean, how did you find... So not taking time off work, I should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how did you find air for yourself? Like, what was the thing that was keeping you, mm. you know, above water and not just like, I'm drowning in this, yeah. whatever this is? Well, I think it's it's the same thing that keeps me above air just in general, right? Yeah. Like, we are living in sort of a universe, a near universally acknowledged, like, hellscape. And yet, like, we're we're having fun still, right? Like, we are we are finding little ways to have fun. And we are taking pleasure in some of the things that make this world a hellscape. And I think I just tried, that actually was the solution. It was partly the things in my life that would give me relief. They all made it into the book in some way, kind of. Like, um, I think also one thing that I am really good at is, like, I am sometimes, you know, like, painfully on on the internet. But when I'm off, I'm really, really off. And that, I think, is the best. um, I got really good at, you know, putting my phone down for, you know, 24 full hours and just, you know, never looking at it. And I think, um, yeah, but it was also, I think, like, reconceiving pleasure as something that's, you know, cannot be disentangled from, you know, understanding these things as very inextricable. Yeah. That helped me. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. That just sounds like such a hard book to write though. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really going through it, but, um, <laughs> so like, what were you consuming as you were writing this? I sometimes think so. My favorite part of any piece is the research stage because you can do it while you're like lazy or hungover, you know, (laughs) like, you know, you don't have to like interview people. You don't have to like I I was luxuriating in. I I just read I think so before I even pitched when I was putting together proposal, I put together a reading list. And I was like, okay, there is enough intelligence from other people here that you will be able to build upon. So I every essay I put together this long reading list and would just read anything that I could about it. Yeah. yeah. And I don't like, 
I never read what, and what I read for pleasure never has anything. Like I'm not, when I'm, you know how people, when they're writing something will try to like either avoid or only read things that are kind totally, of, yeah. and I, I'm just like such a promiscuous and like reader that I just, you know, was like, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Um, can I ask about your fiction days and yeah. what that switch from, Going from fiction to nonfiction and, and blogging and then now kind of like writing a book that's yeah. so nonfiction. Yeah. How has that, how did that shift work for you? Well, shout out to my agent, Amy, right there. He picked me up for my novel and I was like, I'm shelving it. She was like, cool, you'll write another one. <laughs> uh, she knew. <laughs> um, I, I loved writing fiction so much. Have you ever, have you ever done it? Um, yeah, for fun. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think, I mean, I... I went to UVA for college and I, oh, we got, we got some, uh, y'all, there, there's a UVA chapter in the book, Ugh, like, <laughs> like haven't heard from too many people in Charlottesville. I, um, <laughs> I loved UVA. I actually, I wrote about, I've written about UVA. I mean, UVA is in this, it was in the middle of this like incredible, horrible season of just like the blood was coming out of the soil kind of, you know? And I got some, I would get some really nasty emails from former classmates being like, you know, like that school gave you so much, like how could you criticize? And I was like, this is, which is so rude, you know, even though they did, like I, they did give me a lot. They gave me like a debt-free life, which is, uh, you know, life-changing. That's great. Yeah. It's life-changing. But I sort of feel like I was like, this is the only way I can express my love for an institution is by like, you know, it's, it's attention, whatever. But so, um, wait, what was, oh, the fiction thing. <laughs> the so fiction, yeah. I had at UVA, UVA has this great English department and I would take fiction classes on the side of every, like I just took an extra class every semester because I thought it was fun. Yeah. And I never thought that I was particularly good at it, but I also liked doing it. And so when I was, um, back from Peace Corps, and this was like very poster session. I was like, I'm never going to have a job. It's never going to involve writing. You know, I was just like, I'm going to be taking like Craigslist, like gig work for the literal rest of my life. And I was like, okay, how can I get paid to write? Like, how can I? And so I applied to MFA programs that were fully funded, which is my advice, you know, go, go if they're fully funded. And, um, and I loved for two years, like it was, it was pure pleasure. It was, I think that writing fiction made me a lot better at sketching in a scene very quickly and being vivid with details and sort of cadence and dialogue and, and structure. Like writing that novel taught me a lot about structure that I still think I'm applying in my work. But I was talking about this, like if I got fired tomorrow, I would move to the woods and try to write another novel, but I can't, I haven't been able to write fiction since moving to New York because my, my brain is so much more hectic. Yeah. And, but for me, like fiction feels like art and magic and, and journalism feels like work. And I've always been great at work and I've never, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I'm a great consumer of art and magic, but I don't know. I don't know how I, but it was, so the switch was, the switch was like, I felt like I was playing in a realm that I wasn't sure I should be allowed to enter with fiction. And then mm -hmm. I slid kind of magically into a, a job in media with the hairpin when I was in my grad school program. And I was like, oh, this is like the thing that you're, this is the thing that you can do. You can work at the pace of the internet. Your, you know, your, your horrible broken brain is actually good at like this, this fast turn yeah. shit. And, um, and then basically the book thing, I was like, okay, you need to take yourself off this wheel before it becomes all you can do. Like I want, I wanted to get back into I'd also gone like I had gone from barely being edited to being edited like into New Yorker house style. And I was like, OK, I need to see if what I sound like just writing for myself. Yeah. You know, and sure. not knowing what the audience was. I'm just like, has that been 
It's fine. been so strange. I'm yeah. like, whoa, where is this writing coming from? And yeah. I, I really love it. And, and you it get to write nice. just to you, basically, yeah, I think. It feels I mean, so intimate. Yeah. And essentially, I always think, I mean, <clears throat> because um, I sort of think that, like, I never really think about people reading my work because I think down that road, like, lies madness, you know? Like, I think sort of thinking too much about how other people are going to, I'd rather just past my own bar yeah. of like, is this bearable, you know? And, yeah. and so where does that bar sit though? I mean, like, I think, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, like, is it, how, how did you, did that bar get raised or lowered as you got older? Like, what, I think that bar has always, I mean, I hope it's gotten raised <laughs> since then, <laughs> but I think it's pretty high. I think like, yeah. I think that one of the reasons that there's like, it maybe an intensity about, I think that it's like, being alive is so crazy that it's like, I don't want to waste any of anyone's time and I don't want to waste any of mine. And my own, like the bar that I'm passing for like, is this word, does this word mean anything? You know, it's like, it's such a, it's such a granular thing that I'm trying to make myself pass every time I write a sentence yeah. that I'm sort of like, you know, I'm always writing for myself anyway and hoping that I can just keep my own metric good enough that if it works for me, it'll hopefully work for other people. And so being able with a book, it was sort of formalized. Like you are just kind of writing to, to challenge yourself, right. And totally, to, yeah. to stretch your own abilities and to see what you can, what you can make of something. There's some really personal stuff in here where you talk about marriage and even religion and it involves, you know, your partner and some family and, you know, the people who you grew up with, how, like, did you consider them in this yeah. picture as you were writing it? And how did you cope with that? So I, yeah, I just had my book tour stop in Houston <laughs> and I was like, and like my, um, like there were like some parents of my, like it's, it's, you know, it's kind of dicey, you know, I mean, I wrote about the school I went to, um, and it was kind of, well, yeah, it was, I, <laughs> I, like a teacher that I had had and like, like, you know, like teachers were there and I was like, holy fuck. Um, I, yeah. So I, I think that when I write about, when I write about my life, even like you can be super vivid about a little part of your life and keep a lot of it hidden. And it can seem, I mean, it is true that I've probably, I mean, my best friends, I gave them the draft of this book when I was done and they were like, people are going to know a lot about you. And I was like, oh, I guess they will. Yikes. You know, I didn't think about that. But I I also instinctively know that, you know, my partner, he, you know, he's like, you can't even find his last name on the internet, basically. Or I yeah. guess now you can, but like, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Andrew. Um, but it's, I think that I was especially careful to um, not... I mean, even when I write about myself, I try not to do it in a way that it is the information being conveyed is about me primarily, right? I want it to be that it's it is clearly serving some other purpose. Yeah. For and sure. so I I tried to use them in that way. And there are definitely things that are and will be off the table. Um but but I, and I gave yeah. the book, yeah, and I also like gave the book to yeah. them and was like, you To know. your point about, you know, when your friends were like, whoa, people are going to know everything about you. How yeah. did you emotionally steal yourself for, you know, events like this where people will probably come up and ask you super personal questions yeah. where you're like, whoa. <laughs> well, so for better or worse, like, I think this is the part of my personality that has led to, you know, me blogging on Angel Fire when I was 10 and yeah. me going on this reality TV show and me like mostly interacting with, you know, hellish Twitter from a standpoint of like, this is fun, you know? And then when, it, you know, I think, um, it's like, if I meet someone at a bar, 
I will know how they lost their virginity in five minutes and they will probably know it about me too. Like I, I am, I've always been such an open book and I, and I've lately been wondering like how I've been like this since I was a toddler, but I'm sure it has gotten like hardened into my permanent personality by the mechanisms of the world. Like, you know, this can be good for you. But I, um, yeah, like in LA I had, like this, this, I actually, this girl was incredible. She walks up to me in the signing line and she was like, I saw your tweet about how the cats trailer made you want to do ketamine. You want some ketamine? (laughs) And I was like, no, yes, no. Yeah. You know, like I was like, do I like, do I? No, no. Like, you know, like, (laughs) and she was like, yeah, I didn't know if you would take drugs. And I was like, yeah, I would never, uh, like, you know, like, like, I don't know. (laughs) But maybe after. I know. And then she like Instagram DM me and I was like, all right, all right. Like, Um, but yeah, it is. I think mostly the weird thing is that it doesn't feel that weird. I think like yeah. this has been like realizing how naturally I have always taken to all of these systems that are extremely strange. Um, and I, cause I actually, you know, I don't, it's like people have also been asking me like, you know, like how do you choose what to show of yourself on the internet and what to not? And I'm like, Oh, I never think about it at all. <laughs> like, you know, and, and I think that, um, and I, sort of feel that that's the only bearable way of operating in these systems is just going by instinct and not thinking too hard about it and hoping that yourself is, you know, decent enough to make that okay. Right. Um, yeah. Well, decent enough by what standards? Like decent enough. Like I won't just like self cancel, you know, <laughs> like I won't just like tweet something super racist, like, yeah, because yeah. it's what I'm thinking. Like I just, I, I, you know, like I, I just, mean... <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like I'm sort of like, I, I, someone asked me, um, you know, have, has your employer ever gotten mad at you about something you've tweeted? You know, like you're tweeting about like being high or something. And, and I was just like, no, because I think that, you know, if you have to change, if, if the internet, which is this thing that is, you know, it is like a parallel para universe that is, you know, this like simulacrum that's like inextricable from real life. If we have to be different people, like if we have to, if we have to fake who we are on the internet, you know, like it's, it's all over, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Decent by my standards, I guess, (laughs) which might not be decent for everybody. I mean, which isn't decent for everybody for sure. But I feel like that's what everyone can hope for themselves, right? Is to create their own standards, have their bar set at a certain place and move it and adjust it as I don't know, time happens. Um, so I think it's time to open this up for questions. So there's a couple mics here on either side of the room. And if you guys want to come up and ask some questions. I guess on the first one. Um, if you could do it again, would you get your MFA? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Because I didn't go into debt. That's the, <laughs> for me, that's the, yeah. It was the best. Oh my God. I always think... I, I mean, you, I, I loved the people that I met there. They were like my, the people in my, in my class were really, really good and they were not egotistical and they were incredibly generous readers. And mostly in terms of just craft, you know, in terms of, um, I I sometimes feel like I'll never be read as closely and with, with as much generosity as I was during the MFA, which can kind of be bad because like someone will submit a really terrible short story and everyone will be like, this should be a novel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, But at the same time, that generosity, like what it meant to me as someone that was at the time, this was 2012, I was like, I don't know if I can write. I don't know if I will ever be able to get paid to write after this. I don't know if this is something that I can... 
I didn't start calling myself a writer till like close to the end of the MFA. And, um, and I think it was, it's hard to overestimate, um, wait, is, yeah. Underestimate? Overestimate? overestimate. All right. <laughs> it's hard to overestimate how, how much that means when you're trying to, that like little greenhouse for right when you need it, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Don't go into debt though. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm also from Houston. So. Oh, where? Uh, Clear Lake. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was I was back there like two days ago and I stepped off the plane. It was like, you know, 103 degrees and like so 99% hot, so humidity. Humid. It was yeah, wild. Sure. My girlfriends were like, we live in the mouth of hell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned that in your research, uh, you read a lot about the labor movement. That's kind of a thing that I feel like we are rearriving at a lot. Um, I'm wondering if in your research there are any kind of insights that you had or things that we should be learning from the labor movement given where we are now. Yeah. So I was thinking about this with like that whole like barstool sports anti-union shit. And like barstool is the one that has their like their slogan is like Saturdays are for the boys. Right. Yeah. And it's like you have Saturdays because of the labor movement. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like it's so crazy. Um, yeah. So specifically, I, I think a lot, I do. So in terms of feminism and in terms of labor organizing, I sometimes think about like, I'm always like, we could not like, we could not learn enough from, you know, a century ago. Like, like there, there is always so much. And I think one of the things that I write about, and one of the things that bothers me the most about internet, uh, the internet is that it, um, it's sort of, it sort of sapped so much of the civic energy that would go into physical action, you know, like, mm-hmm. like we should have had a general strike in America, you know, a year and a half ago. Right. And we don't, we have lost a lot of us. I mean, there is a great resurgence and like, I, you know, I organized in my last workplace, like, you know, we're, we're on it. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, and like the service workers union, the domestic workers union, they're doing amazing things now. But I also think that I, what I think about all the time about, like the, you know, the real like bread and roses, you know, shit is that there was a time where we were, where, where the country was a lot more ready to, you know, to take mass physical action and so much, and thinking about how so much of that energy has gotten swallowed up online. Um, and I think, I think I just think about it like, like that. Like, I hope that we, I hope that we get back there. And I think that we're, I think that we're getting there. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to imagine, like, you know, air traffic controllers, right? Like, even that, even that strike. Yeah, there's um, prosecution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Hi. Um, So, I think you've gotten a lot of attention for the internet essay and and infusing internet throughout all the essays, but I really appreciated the pure heroines essay. Thanks. So much. And I think a lot of your writing benefits from all of the feminist reading that you've done, all the work of Jezebel. Like, I wonder if you can just say a little bit more about how the male gaze informs sort of the performative gaze that we all do now. Mm. Um, And how also, I think you've mentioned sort of, I don't know if anyone's going to ask a Pizzagate question, but you're right next to Pizzagate yeah. right yeah. now. I know. I was just, that was the first thing I asked. I was like, what was that like for you? It sounds really bad. Of, I wonder if you can just say a little bit more about how um, sort of the male gaze has informed all of our sort of performative experience yeah. on the internet. Wait, what about Pizzagate, though? 
how do you feel about talking next to it? That's all. Oh. <laughs> Two questions. I feel, I would just like, I feel so much like sadness for the bookstore employees that had to deal with that, you know, and ugh, like it's terrible. But yeah, so I do think, so there's that John Berger, like ways of seeing, right? Probably a lot of us have read this, this thing that women, you have from a very early age, you have to be very aware of how the world sees you because you have to calibrate, you have to be, it is kind of explicitly taught to you. I think I, you know, as soon as I started reading YM magazine when I was seven or whatever, like I understood that I, I had to be appealing. I understood that that this was something that the world would require of me and want of, or want of me, right? And I, you become aware of how to calibrate yourself according and to, and to understand how other people are processing you naturally. And I think this is why women have conquered the personal branding sectors of the internet. You know, it's why women tend to build, and it's such a double, it, and you know, it's it's such a double-edged sword, right? To adjust, to have successfully adjusted. It's the same thing as like, you know, the only careers in which women out-earn men are porn and modeling and Instagram influencing. And, you know, it's like to, to succeed, they're, like these things are useful tools. I have tried to make use of them in my own life and still do not porn and modeling, but, <laughs> you know, like trying to be like, whatever, like cute. And I feel like it's like, and it's thinking about, and I think that this, this situation, what this sort of monstrous situation of having to be aware of yourself and having to think about how other people see you and having to understand your success in the world is contingent on that. This is being generalized. Like, I think you, there's, there is a connection between that and the sort of growing reality that, you know, you better like if you get in if you go, get in a bike accident when you're uninsured you might have to start a GoFundMe and get people to like you on the internet you know get people to look at you and like you and women are really good at getting people to look at them and like them and i just think that so much of this sort of like panopticon of of like of monetized approval and disapproval um it's like yeah we've just sort of generalized the situ the situation that women have always had to live under, and now we're all finding out that it's it's hell. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you guys so much for speaking. It's extremely lit to see two Asian-American women up here. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so in Trick Mirror, you referenced one of Ilya Kaminsky's poems. I think it was called We Lived Happily During the War. Um, so when you write about things that, you know, are like the war, such as during the, the Kavanaugh hearings last year um, up to now writing about, like, you know, Lululemon as, like, capitalist fetish wear. How do you mediate between, like, living well and living happily but also knowing that terrible things are happening around us and we're living in a terrible hellscape? I don't know. How do you do it? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm genuinely asking. Like, what? I, I take an SSRI. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I fucking smoke a lot of weed, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I walk my dog and smoke a lot of weed. I um I think I mean the Kavanaugh stuff was was raw. Like I um I think one of the things that I one of the things that I would like to get better at is allowing myself to be softer. You know, because I think that my reaction to so much of life and because of how I ended up in this, like, I just think I, I've operated from a standpoint of just like, I am gonna fucking muscle through this and I'll have a good time, you know? And, and I think that that's, it's an attitude that I wouldn't want to lose about myself, but I do, I don't think it's healthy. Basically what I'm saying is like, I cope by, by muscling through it and then just 
inhaling pleasure through whatever through whatever way I can get it. And I think that's okay. I think that's an okay way to live. And it unlocks me every time to the fact that like, you know, life is like the, like I, if any of y'all read the three body trilogy, like there are just certain things that make you remember that um, life, like the fact of being alive, no matter what is amazing, you know? And, and I think that I, and I, I reach for that understanding through sem semi-extreme measures and I'm trying to not need to do either as much. I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, let myself be softer for how hard it actually is. Like, you know, you don't, like the thing is you feel, I feel so guilty. Like I wrote about E. Jean Carroll's essay and it's like, I think this is a problem we probably all think about where it's like our pain, if we don't have a family member at the border, our pain over, over that it feels, we can feel guilty for even having that. We can feel useless for even having that pain and we can get into, and I think that I've just been trying to think about like allowing myself to admit that it fucks me up when I write about that stuff. Um, and, and I think that, yeah. And like maybe, I mean, but what I do is like, yeah, I like, uh, I get high, I put my speakers in the shower and listen to a whole album start to finish and then I'm okay. <laughs> <Thank you>. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as a journalist, you've probably like written some stuff you kind of now disagree with kind of as you've evolved and your opinions have changed too. So how do you cope with being held accountable for something that you disagree with and people treating you as if you still think the same thing? Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so I would say, are you a journalist? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, so I... I got on Twitter in 2012, which is like kind of late-ish. I got Twitter I, and I I think what I, like someone was like, are you going to go back and delete all your tweets, like all your stupid tweets now that like people know who you are? I'm like, no, I'm going to answer for my fucking stupid tweets. And I think that um, like one of the things that I write about in the first essay is like, I want to un understand myself as, and some a reviewer put it really amazingly today. I want to understand myself as this sort of unimportant matter of fact. Like I want to understand myself as, like I exist as a way to understand the world and that's it. And I sort of, I, an, an inconsistent self full of problems. And I, so I've, I've treated this two ways is like, number one, trying to be, I've tried to be very careful from the beginning, not to reach for a conclusion that I, that I might think is overreaching later. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've been aware from the beginning because the blogosphere was already kind of hectic enough by the time I started working that I was aware that like, it's so easy to go too far on the internet. It's so easy to take a stand, you know, for the sake of it. And I was just, just don't do that. Protect yourself by don't, not doing it in the first place. And then second, if you fuck up, just being like, I fucked up. And then it's okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Akash, you wait, hold on. Let me just tell you all a story. Um, <laughs> as my friend Akash, I was in Peace Corps with him. And so I, Akash, <laughs> love you. Um, okay, but so here's the real story. Here's the real applause. So I, I was once, I was like, we were all constantly in trouble. And I was once Skyping my boyfriend in an internet cafe while like disguised as a schoolgirl because I was grounded to my village. And I, and I had been working on a novel because I was like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be about four girls that have just graduated from college. And like, it takes place over the course of one summer day and like all this shit. I'd written like 150 pages and the novel was called Girls. <laughs> um... <laughs> And then, and then someone jacked my laptop, like, while I was Skyping. And, you know, in Peace Corps, it's, like, everything. You know, like, your laptop is, like, literally your, like, literal lifeline. And I, 
And I think I cried for four days straight. I was like with all my friends and this, and this, I just threw myself at their feet and they like patted me. And then at the end of that, Akasha's like, Gia, you can have my laptop because I know that writing will make you feel better. Aww. I need it. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would make me feel better, too, to read your writing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was just wondering, if you were to include another essay in this collection, what it would be about? Guess. <laughs> Guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it would have been, like, so there are moments where that experience peaks out, and I think, um, like, one of, it is, that is the, the one time in my life where I really did genuinely unravel, I think. Um, and so one thing that my other friend's like, yeah, you did, bitch. Like, (laughs) 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 um, (laughs) but I, I think about that. So I wrote a lot during Peace Corps, but I wrote other things, right? I would write like little stories for us. Like I, I wouldn't do the thing that I've done since I was 11, which was, you know, record my life. And I, I don't keep a journal anymore, but I basically, you know, I, I'm, producing so much writing that I, I have this record of my life. And there was something about Peace Corps where it seemed like the entire project of being there was that we were supposed to decenter ourselves and our imagination, right? Then I was like, it was incompatible to me with writing a thousand words every day about like, this was what the breakfast was, you know, like it's, it just seemed, I didn't want, I wanted to see what it was like. I wanted to see if it helped me set, like understand myself more, diminish myself more to not write. And I, And so one of the reasons I didn't write about Peace Corps was that I don't have the record. I can't trust myself not to twist the story. And that's what all of that writing has always helped me do. I don't trust whatever narrative I've made out of it because I've already surely manipulated it. And I don't even know to make myself seem better or worse. Like I can't, I can't tell. And, and I realize now that I should have, like, maybe, maybe it's all that writing that would have helped me decenter myself. You know, I thought that, I, I thought at the time that it would only put me at the, you know, and I think in retrospect, it might've taken me this long to understand that that's that function that writing does. It's this, it's this thing that seems like self-magnification, but the way I've tried to use it is, is it is to lead me, show me how to diminish or something. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> a little short. Hold on. Okay. Um, I'm actually asking this question on behalf of a friend who's an editor with um, Artnet and the New York Times. First off, she calls you a queen, so that's her compliment to you. Thank you. And then she's asking, if you get a chance to ask a question, can you tell her that your writing friend is blocked? And asked for what her advice is for writer's block. If anything, I asked for clarification. She said, I am just blocked, can't form real sentences, she'll understand. Yeah. So I think it's, it's like, it's about chemistry, you know, like if something's dead, you can't force it, you know? And, and, but so, okay, there are two kinds of writer's block. Like there's one where the subject is, is dead, you know, like you're, you're not getting anywhere new, Yeah. you know? And, and you kind of like, you should, sometimes you should abandon that project and switch. Like sometimes writer's block is a signal that you need to switch to something new. But if it's a subject that you still have chemistry with, but can't work out how it is, I feel like the answer is, it's, I mean, I'm talking about all these things like they're relationships, but it's like you do what you would do in a relationship. You take some time off and then you meet the thing again in the place where you will generate something, you know? And and it's like you can, maybe you got to take a year off of that subject. Maybe you got to try something new for six weeks, you know? Um, yeah. All right, I'll pass that along. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, hi, Gia. I've, I think I've loved you since maybe it was 2015 when you helped me embrace something about myself that I was, what? that I hate fall. 
It's the worst Thank season. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. The season of dread and yeah, death. Yeah, true. And I was like, I mean, so productive. The only, like, no, I hate it's it. only the season after. I mean, I've like tried to grow up and like like it some more, you know, but like, because I think part of the reason I hate it is like, I'm a baby. I want to be at the pool, you know, but I, um, but I like. No shame. No shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No but I think, but fall is objectively the only season after which the next season is worse. worse. And so like, fuck that, yeah. you know, yeah. like I think I said in that piece, it's like, I'd rather be dead than thinking about it, you know? Um, so my question is what's the first book you remember loving and what's the first book you remember hating ooh that's spicy that's so spicy I can't remember the first book I loved because I can't remember I mean I think like probably a lot of us I just you know like I read just everything I could get my hands on I read you know like I I think I mean all of the all of those all of those like children's books with those heroines that were so brave and so crazy, you know, like I loved, I loved those so much. I, I don't remember what came first, but it was like all of, you know, all the classics, like the Betsy Tacey books, you know, anyone? Yeah. You, you know, um, the Betsy Tacey books and Laura Ingalls books, the, you know, the mixed up files. Um, I highly recommend for my mixed up files heads out there. If you haven't read her other book, the view from Saturday, really it's so good it's like such a perfect um like maybe it was like the boxcar children you know it was just like anything anything I get my hands on is my favorite and maybe I was saying today I I was doing like a buy the book thing for the times and they asked me what is the book that you would recommend to everyone under 18 and I said Random Family by Adrian Nicola Blanc which is a perfect book and it's so spicy like it's just so it's so amazing and it's and I just and it made me think about reading a separate piece in high school and I was just like and like my teacher wouldn't talk about the good part, which is that they're gay and in love, you know? And I, and I was just, and I was, I was like, I, I was like, it kind of radicalized me. Cause I was like, Hmm, if it's possible that our teacher is making us read this shit for six weeks, then anything's possible, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. What was the first book you hated? Oh yeah. I was just talking about this with my friend. I remember hating Ivanhoe. Oh yeah. I never even tried with that one. Yeah. But we were discussing, yeah. Like what it, makes why you hate a book and for me it was like the societal expectation that this is a good book yeah and I did not relate at all well and it's the maleness of it well, and, and, and I the, felt ashamed of that right and that's what that whole essay that's what that one essay in the book is about this whole thing that like you know you read fucking you know like no no shots to like the Nick Adams fishing stories like they're wonderful like but you read Hemingway and you're like this is about what it is li- what it is to be alive mm-hmm. and then you're like, mm. you know and, yeah. and it's like the, the men's experience yeah. gets painted at this as this universe, we read all these war stories. We read yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front, and it's and it's like this is about the human condition, yeah. you know. And then women's novels about women are about how society has ruined them. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I can't. <laughs> like yeah, all of those yeah, books yeah. where they're supposed to be universal, like I hated Catcher in the Rye. Like you know, just yeah, yeah, yeah. no time for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we have time for one more question, so please go okay. ahead. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Hi, I just wanted to ask, um, because I've been thinking about doing this for a while, if you recommended joining the Peace Corps. <laughs> Got my row right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. I will say it will be, like, I was told this a million times before I left, mm-hmm. um, and there's no way to understand this until you're there. 
it will be nothing like what you think it is. And the ways it will be hard are nothing like the ways that you think they'll be hard. It'll be hard in the ways in which it's rewarding mm-hmm. will be nothing like the ways you, you hoped. Mm-hmm. And in that it was, it was probably, it was one of the most important experiences of my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's also, you know, it's also like I, in a lot of ways, I think of it as like a great, like a, a great failure on my part. And I also, cause I like was always in trouble. I left early. Like it was this whole thing. And I think, um, I think that like the way I describe it, you know, how people say humbled when they really mean that they're honored, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm so <laughs> humbled to get this award, you know, um, it's yeah. like Peace Corps is humbling. It's humbling. It will like bring you to your knees. Uh-huh. And that's what I wanted. But I didn't know, like, I didn't know the way that it would deliver. And it was really intense. But I, that's- that being said, it was, it was the fucking best. <laughs> yeah. It being humbling is exactly what I want from it too. Yeah. But you know, so humbling, like true, a true humbling, right. It's, it's, it is, it is like, it's twinned with devastation. You know what I mean? To be really humbled, you have to be willing to be just fully broken apart by the experience. And I think I thought like humility is this, like, you know, this will place me in the context of world systems. And I'll understand, like, I, I wanted this sort of knowledge of, I wanted to know the the difference. I mean, I, and this this sort of concern carries through the book. The difference between, you know, wanting to do good and being able to. Um, I wanted to understand that better, and I got you know a larger education in it than I could have anticipated. But yeah, I, I recommend it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for talking with me. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.